0: Heard that it was said that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who's I mean look out tell
1: them look out for my worldview cloudy when you sinking got you thinking it's a whirlpool Caesar in your pockets you can't see who's in your pockets but Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move Wifey bob her head and make her curls move crown jeweler's character in the same immortality with fairy dust never land never say I never give you hands if I can't give them
0: back to you welcome to the Belfast podcast dedicated to those deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. I'm your host, Luke Byler, and this time I have another conversation with Daniel. This one was the one we referenced last week, the the thing we didn't get to, and we spent the whole time on this, and we talked for almost two hours about Jonah, and yeah it was, it was something, it was something, it was eye-opening, he pointed out things I didn't even know, it was challenging, as it should be, it was emotional, and um, I will say two comments uh, on what you're about to listen to, we um, got cut short in our time, kind of because we had some, well, for a couple reasons. One of them being I had some technical difficulties with my camera before we started the meeting and that happened, ended up pushing us back and late. And then we talked for a while, just catching up before we started recording that took about 20, 25 minutes. So then we were cut short. He had to leave. His wife came home um, doing their thing. So, um, so yeah, we, we were kind of in the middle of wrapping it up as, as that time came to end and I, I was hoping to get to some more um, implications, talking about some of the more nuances of, of uh, how to apply Jonah and what applying it means um, and the, the complicated nature, truly, of, of doing that, of, of embodying Jonah, of being a good Jonah, and what, um, what it means to call someone to repentance like Jonah does, and then also what it means to be someone who repents at um, a word like that and our different motivations for those things and how all that is interplayed. We didn't get to talk about all that. We didn't get to talk about some of the stuff that I told him before I wanted to talk about and talking about Jonah. I don't know if we're going to return to Jonah um, simply because I, I, I have a lot more things I want to talk about. And I, I think we got the gist. And I, I just pray that as you listen to this and as you um, wrestle through some of the things that we bring up, that holy spirit can guide um can guide you because i trust that i trust that 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 you can use this use our conversation to to further your thinking to pray about it to read about it um you know i i've never claimed and will never claim to have the end end all be all on any of these topics or or to or to talk about them exhaustively at any level on this podcast so um so that's just just a word to that, and I feel like it's especially necessary for this conversation because this 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 book might be worth a whole lifetime of study, right? A lot of these conversations are a lifetime study for many people, people that I'm pulling from. Right. So 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 there's there's that. I just pray and hope that that through this conversation you can be sparked. The Holy Spirit can speak to you in, in, in the different implications for your life that, that we didn't get to. And what that might mean. Um, the second thing, and it's just just a note, um, maybe for for those who, who pay attention. Uh, but just, just to just to have again some vulnerability here. Um, so so we talked about Jonah and Genesis, and we talked and then we talked about Jesus. And I don't know what it is. Um, you know, I, I I'm not someone who's who's emotionally reserved necessarily. I uh, never had a problem with my emotions; they've never been shameful to me. Um, but then again, I know there's a time and place for these kinds of things. Um, but there was something about reading the words of Jesus in, in light of this conversation that that got to me. And I'm, you know, I'm sitting there reading, reading portions of the Sermon on the Mount, fighting back tears because because Jesus is just so radical. I, I, don't, I don't know of a better word. And then, and especially in light of the story, what he's, what he's saying is so revolutionary that it can't help but be stirred. And I'll just say, if, if, and, and I said this in a conversation actually today, which, which isn't out yet, but in a conversation that I had with my buddy Rich, I said, if you're reading Jesus, and he's not challenging you, and he's not making you uncomfortable, then you're not reading Jesus. So, he was doing that. And, and it, I, I guess all, of, all that is to say, if you, if you listen close, if you watch closely, you'll, you'll, see, you'll see the emotion in my face, and in my voice, you'll hear it. That's not about to have like a, a cry moment. In the middle of this podcast with Daniel, it would just have been, been awkward, I think. Um, so yeah, there's my introduction to our conversation about Jonah. Uh, as always, I hope that, that what we talk about is um, encouraging, that it is challenging, that it, it maybe this one specifically might reveal something new to you uh, about God's word, about the story of Jonah and what it means for us. And I think especially now, today in America, in 2021, Jonah might be one of the most important stories we can tell. I'll do with that, I'll do with that what you will let the reader understand that sentence. But yes, I hope you guys enjoy it. And if you do, give me a like, subscribe, rate and review me on iTunes drop me an email, any of that, all of that. And I will see you all in the next one. Okay. Here we are again, already been talking off air for like 20 minutes about things about Daniel's podcast, spoiler teaser and, um, about, uh, things we want to talk about in the future. So I won't give that away. Um, part of the crew, part of the ship. (laughs) you'll get that that reference later um it's brilliant
1: uh, absolutely brilliant i i cannot
0: john john marsh is um help me with that for sure i don't know if i was the one that brought that up if he brought that up but we when we thought about it we were talking about that and so one of us mentioned it because we've been watching the movies and we were like oh my gosh that is an amazing picture or that thing um being really vague right now but that's okay.
1: we'll be talking about this next this conversation next time um, <laughs>
0: anyway, anyway. So uh, already was- let's dude let's we've we've kind of had some fun already i know we like had some difficulties with technology yeah. we're already i know you don't have a bunch of time as of right now so let's just let's jump into what we didn't get to last week which is jonah okay. genesis okay. jesus and jonah is i think how you said it earlier yeah. Um, for everybody's reference uh, just to know where we're at with this right now uh, I've been reading Jonah. I've read it probably three times now throughout the past week or two um, just all in one sitting. It's only four chapters. Not very long. Right. That's 10 minutes. Maybe. I read
1: almost the whole thing while you were um, dealing with your technical difficulties. So.
0: Yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah. Uh, so Yes, if you want to, if you're somewhere where you can pause this and take 10, 15 minutes and read through Jonah before we have this conversation, please do. If you're driving, please don't. Don't. <laughs> um, if you're working out, you might pause this while you're taking a break between your sets. Get it on your phone, pull it up online, pull, pull it up on the Bible app. Um, really easy read. Really fascinating story. I hope we get into some of that stuff. Um, this is going to be an interesting and fun conversation. I don't know exactly where it's going to go. Yeah. Uh, as with all mine, that's kind of the fun of it is It's very exploratory. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I have some things to say. Uh, but yeah, okay. so I've been reading through, that being said, I've been reading through the story the past few weeks um, a few times. Uh, and then I will link below. Uh, Tim Mackey's sermon series that he did at Door of Hope. Oh, uh, yeah. what is it now? Eight years ago. On Jonah, it's a five-part series. Each sermon's about forty-five minutes. Um, so I've been listening to while I'm working out, while I'm running, uh, that kind of thing. Making dinner. You know, all the all the places you listen to podcasts in. So maybe you're doing one of those things right now. Uh, but yeah, I've been I I listened through almost all five. I got most of the way through the fifth one this morning while I was, while I was lifting. Um, yeah. Very good. Very good series. Um, I know that Heiser will maybe get to this, but Heiser has a whole podcast episode about Jonah and the Leviathan, which I can link below. Uh, I listened to most of that, but that was a while back. Um, didn't fresh up on that. Um, and I know with our title, we just said G- Genesis, jonah and jesus there's some references to jonah uh, thematically and literally by jesus himself in matthew 12 uh, which anybody who's been listening to this podcast for any period of time knows that i reference that passage a lot basically because i wrote a paper on it last semester so i know a lot about it Um, i don't actually know that's like the part of the passage i have the least interpretive theory or like research in um, I kind of know the general theme Jesus is going for with reference to Jonah and Nineveh and the Queen of the South, or the Queen of Sheba, depending on your translation. Um, but that's, you know, in the weeds, maybe for later. Uh, but yes. So if you're listening to this, I will link those down below. If, the, if what we say, your p- curiosity, you can listen to those. Um, and I would say, but to start either after this conversation or now, if you want to pause, just read the story. It is fascinating and I think it has a lot to say to us, which hopefully we'll get into that too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, with that introduction out of the way, probably too long, but Daniel, you can kick us off. Uh, where do you want to yeah. start? Start in Genesis or start with Jonah? Uh, you want to start with Jonah Genesis? You want to start with Genesis?
1: Yeah. Okay. So we'll start with Genesis. Um, just to sort of set the stage and I'm not going to stay here too, too long, but what I, I will say is, um, Understanding Genesis 1 is, I think, critically important for understanding a large portion of Scripture. Um,
0: Amen. And um, sorry, it hasn't been posted yet, but it'll get posted before I post this episode. So, as I'm recording, I haven't edited last week's conversation fully, uh, but we had a little bit of a conversation about that because I had had some things happening with school uh, regarding interpretations of Genesis one. So we had a bit of conversation about that. So you will most likely hear that before you hear this, if you're listening to the episodes in order.
1: Yeah. So Genesis one has a lot of interpretive weight, I think. And, um, it does a lot to give light to the, um, surrounding cultural understanding and perception of, um, Water, order of the world, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that the book of Jonah is doing a lot with that, literarily. Okay. And so I think it's important to start in Genesis. Um, I will say, and you turned me on to this, but Tim Mackey on the Bible Project podcast, um, they just did a series on ancient Near Eastern cosmologies, and that was absolutely fantastic. So I would also recommend that everyone go and listen to those. Yeah, it's I can fun. link
0: those below too. Um, yeah. We'll just throw all the links down there. Uh, yeah. How much of sorry? How much of that have you listened to? Oh, uh, the whole thing. Okay, I've listened to three episodes of the Cosmology Conversation, and I listened to the Swamidas episode, which is like I don't know what to do with that. So well,
2: cool. I have to.
1: Say
0: that. actually cool. has a, I, I say better, better because it's longer. Yeah. heiser has a two-part interview with him okay. um, he was also one of the people that like paneled and stuff for his work um but yeah they're a two-parter each one's an hour so they get into a lot more depth of yeah. oh my gosh's his history and his research uh, which a- actually he teaches in st louis i was literally in st louis mm-hmm. uh two weekends ago And I was tempted to like try and email his school email and be like, Hey, could I get grab coffee with you? But I was like, no, no, no. I want to read his book first. If I'm going to talk to him about it. So, um, so yeah. Anyway.
1: So yeah, I would highly recommend um, listening to those because I think that will give a greater and more fuller understanding than I can give in the time we have. Um, Plus it would be just me repeating a lot of the stuff that they said, but essentially something that's important to understand is that within the biblical understanding and the, the culture of the Israelites and then later specifically the Jews, um, the, they saw water as the, um, something that was necessary for life, but also potentially the antithesis of life. Yes. And so in the beginning you have darkness hovering over the to home is the, um, the word in Hebrew, and mm-hmm. it typically gets translated "waters" um, or "abyss" or um, I think the best image that I could give is "primeval waters," something that's like yeah, ancient and before and dark and chaotic. Um, and so there's this idea that um, the Earth in all of existence started in a, um, in a state of chaos. And then God speaks to that chaos and produces calm and order and life. And he brings life out of the order that he has been creating from this chaotic water. Um, And so that has some pretty significant um, allusions to ancient Near Eastern cosmologies and myths.
0: By the way, you can still definitely have a literal interpretation of Genesis and that totally vibe with it. So that, yeah. that interpretation doesn't, yes. doesn't matter which view of Genesis you take.
1: Yes, it really does not. Um, that fact is simply um, a methodology of creation yeah. and um, a poetic allusion to some other things yeah. that the Israelites would have been familiar with at their time. So um, Tim does a lot of stuff with that that's really, really cool, but I think it's important to understand that when um, Israelites did not like water for this reason. Uh, they Let, were mountain- on, go ahead, finish that statement. Yeah, I was going to say they were mountain people, They were land people, they enjoyed their wilderness and their desert, and they did not like open water. Even fishermen liked to stick pretty close to shore. So it's important to recognize that um, and the chaos that God speaks over um, as being a watery abyss, first and foremost, before we even start the conversation in Genesis. And there's one more thing I'll say, but what were you going to add?
0: I was just going to add, you see this in Revelation 21, right? Mm-hmm. This is yeah. the idea that's given. I'll, I'll just read. Um, I'll read these two verses. The Genesis, or sorry, Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2. This is in the NIV version, which is fine. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That links to some things we talked about a few episodes ago, but just the fact that when john is recounting his visions for what this is going to look like he's he's using the image harkening back to genesis 1 as well but for the first time the earth, first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea now you could say is he saying that there's literally no bodies of water maybe but probably not like his point is that the chaos of which there had been in the beginning no longer exists
1: yeah god did away with the the primeval waters, the abyss, capital A. Um, if, if you're reading a translation of Genesis 1 and it doesn't translate it deep, capital D, abyss, capital A, or primeval waters, capital P, you should probably get a new translation, at least for that passage, just because there is, it is an actually different word in the Hebrew that means something specific. And the term to home comes up again when um, God floods the earth in The story of Noah It's the same word there. It's only used when it comes to like dark, chaotic water. It's used again when uh, Pharaoh gets killed at the Red Sea and the waters flood over him. Um, And I think it's used again a few other times. And so, in fact, it's it's used again in Jonah. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, But it's important to understand the Israelite resistance to water. Um, and open sea
0: and just the ancient people in general right because yep the waters where a storm happens and your boat sinks and you die right this is why again like navy jones locker is an idea yeah for sailors yeah right like there's a deep abyss that you go to all those who drown in the waters this the scripture talks about this actually when revelation 20 as well like the, the water spit up their dead right yeah. like they come up from Davy Jones locker to use that language right like
1: oh, i was about to get into that it's yeah
0: yes there's a reason that all this mythology exists around like somebody taking care of all those dead sailors right yeah. well why because death happens all the time at sea and yeah. it's unpredictable and so yes it this this feeling about water hasn't just existed in the ancient times for israel they've existed i think it would still exist today like the first yeah. time i ever had a panic attack i was scuba diving yeah. right because i was freaking out like i shouldn't be breathing underwater i shouldn't be breathing underwater yeah. and i the scuba instructor had to hold my hand through the rest of like 15 minute dive for giving to calm down but this yeah. fear of water is just I think there's something, there's a reason this picture comes up again and again throughout culture yeah. is because it is the place of the unknown. It is the place of deep darkness. It is the, the abyss. It is yeah. where death is unpredictable. It is where if you're there for too long, you're going to die.
2: Yep.
1: So, and, you know, and so, sort of to reference a conversation we had before this, the, um, the Israelite conception of the underworld was Shaol. It wasn't hell as we have it now. It was a watery, sunken, ghostly abyss. They literally saw the bottom of the sea as hell. And it was, it was Davy Jones' locker. Yeah. It, 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 and they called it Shaol, was the yeah. term. So, anytime, again, anytime you see a translation that in the old Testament references, hell they're making a theological choice to translate hell in there. Hell is not the word Shaol is the word. And it's a deep, dark, it's, it's no fire, right? There's, there's no fire at the bottom of the ocean. It's, it's a deep, dark, watery drowned sunken abyss that is cold and miserable and chaotic. Um, and so the uh, I mean, the term in Genesis one is um, <sighs> shoot. Oh, it gets translated as um, Marty uses chaotic nothingness. Um, Tim yeah. and several other scholars say wild and waste. I can't remember the the Hebrew words off the top of my head. For some me neither.
0: They 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 have the same alliteration as wild and waste. Yeah,
1: yeah. So. Um, They're also used to describe um, the desert, the wilderness, um, the place you would go to die, the place you need to rely on God in order to survive. Um, So anyway, we've set the stage, right, with this chaotic nothingness, and the beginning of the biblical narrative starts with God speaking to this hell, like this, this literal hell, and causing order in life to come forth out of it. Right. So then we get to the story of Jonah and it starts, you know, rather interestingly, um, there is, let me see, I'll just read. So
0: and give, sorry, before you do this, just give some of your history with experience with the story of Jonah.
1: Yeah. So I was actually about to mention um, I'm reading from my own translation of the book of Jonah. So I, for one of my final projects last semester, translated the entire book of Jonah from the original Hebrew, Um, the Biblia Hebraica. So this right here, um, I believe is based off of the Masoretic text. I could be wrong. I forget. Um,
0: I think it is because you looked up Deuteronomy 32 in it and it said son of Israel, which I think some, if you, anyway, if you agree with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are older, uh, it says sons of God. So, yeah. Anyway. So this is based off
1: the, uh, the Masoretic text. So we can talk about textual criticism and stuff about my translation of Jonah later. Um, I'm not super well versed. No, I'm on not,
0: that, I'm not worried about it.
1: Yeah. But this is what I got from the original Hebrew. And I'll go ahead and be upfront when reading my translation and I won't read the whole thing. Um, but, and remind me to email this to you. I can give you, um, yeah, that'd be great. Word doc. But, um, the, my agenda with this was to try to translate similar words similarly every single time they appeared in the text, as long as it made sense. Um, so I tried to capture that aspect of the Hebrew, because anytime you're making a translation, you got to make gen, like you have an agenda, you got to make some choices about how you're going to translate certain words, we've already had that conversation. So that was really my Uh, my driving force behind this translation. So does it capture everything that's in the Hebrew? No, but this is what I, um, how I felt best captures a holistic view, um, staying consistent. So um, what's super interesting about the first chapter of Jonah um, is this, and Tim hits on this a little bit in um, in his sermon, is this theme of going up and going down. Um, And so God, um, so I'll just read. Uh, Jonah 1, 1, and the word of Yahweh came to Yonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call upon her. Surely their wickedness will, you know, yada, 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 verse 3. But Yonah arose to flee before Yahweh to Tarshish, and he went down to Yopat. And so there's this idea of going up, and then this idea of going down. And Jonah, God calls Jonah to go up, but then when he goes up, he immediately cuts down to Yopa, which is a port, um, a port city on the coast. And so there's some interesting things about the word Tarshish. Um, different scholars place Tarshish at different places. Some say that it is all the way in Spain. And so it's the literal opposite end of the world. So if um, Assyria, which is where um, Nineveh is the capital city of the empire, Assyria, uh, who was a massive oppressive conquering force in this period of history. Um, Assyria is in the um, Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia and The Tarshish, if it's in Spain, is literally on the opposite side of the world, the known world. Um, It's as far west as you can go before hitting the open ocean. And they don't know anything past that. There are some people who also think that it is a some kind of Phoenician coastal village. So it could be up in Phoenicia or along the Mediterranean coast in the north. Um, But... You know, there, there's a bit of debate about that. Regardless, it's in the opposite direction, using an opposite method of travel, because Jonah would not have um, gone, he wouldn't have sailed to Assyria, uh, to Nineveh. In fact, the fact that the fish spits him up, it says it spits him up on land later, but it doesn't dry land specifically, which will be important. Um, but it doesn't spit him up. It can't spit him up right on the bank. Otherwise it has to swim up river. And um, it actually talks about Jonah, like going to Nineveh. So it was like an actual trip he had to make. So middle of the story, he is making a conscious choice, which will be important later. But anyway, so we have this idea of him going down. Um, And then, you know, he gets in the ship and he's going away from before Yahweh. But Yahweh cast a great wind to the sea, and there was a great storm, and the ship considered to break. So the sailors were afraid, and the men cried out, each to their own god, casting vessels into the sea. Um, but Jonah had gone down into the side of the ship and laid down to sleep. Um, and so if you may have noticed this already, but everything in this story is great. It's like super big and super intense. Um, and Tim talks about that being... Um, like a comic book or satirical nature of the story. And I really think that he uh, pinned the nail on the head there with that. But again, Jonah keeps going down and down and down. And so he's consistently making choices that are leading him in this direction, down. And what's funny is, as we'll see at the end of chapter one and in chapter two, he ends up literally at the lowest point you can go. It's not rock bottom, it's ocean bottom. And it doesn't get lower than that, at least in the Hebrew mind. What's also funny is to point out, like I said earlier, you got the concept of Sha'ol. Um, Hebrews genuinely thought that any open body of water was a, a gateway to Sha'ol. So choosing to cross over an open body of water is rather risky when you think the gate to hell is directly under your feet. Um, and so Jonah really, really, really does not want, he's willing to risk traveling over the gate of hell
2: to run over
1: Yeah, so like we don't understand when we just read this story, we don't understand the significance of that. Like he really does not want to go to Nineveh. And you can think, well, why? Um, Tim talks about how terrifying the Assyrians were in his sermon series. Um, And so I, I think he does a really good job of painting that picture, but maybe doesn't quite go far enough because they were absolutely brutal. They skinned people alive. They butchered, they raped, they put fish hooks in your mouth and drug you along until you died or you made it into captivity. They were absolutely brutal. They were known for taking a city and taking some of its important people and then some of its not so important people and just leaving them literally on spikes on hills outside the city as taunts to people they've conquered and people they haven't, um, showing them the might and power of Assyria.
0: I'm trying to think of another historical or film example, just to give some someone who's listening a picture of that. Yeah. Um, what comes to my head is someone like um, a hunt, yeah. right yep um i'm trying to think of like a film scene that captures that kind of
1: idea um i might want immediately to the um the Urukai in lord of the rings but okay uh, that might work um they're that brutal um
0: yeah but, i'm trying to also think of I'm trying to think of that because the practice of um, like impaling was uh, who is it the guy who was the, the the vampire?
1: Vlad the Impaler.
0: Vlad the Impaler. Yeah. Um, why did they make me think of vampire? Is that where? Dracula. He's... Okay, so am I correct in that thinking? Yeah. yeah am, cool I, am I done yeah, Okay, no, cool, cool, cool. Um, yeah. yeah, but if you want to get a picture of that, just like Vlad the Impaler, like he would yeah. do the same kind of practice. Um, yep. So we're just talking grotesque, like yes. awful. Like a modern day example that might get at it is something like what ISIS is doing in the Middle East. Yeah, something like, but on yeah. a grander scale. Like yes. if if all of the Middle East was ISIS, yeah. then like yeah. maybe, like yeah. think about like I know it's way like the power of it is sadly gone. Because it's overused so much. So maybe the other one I'm gonna use in a second will be better. But like think about Germany 1942. Yeah. Right. Or think about communist Russia under Stalin. Think about Kierkegaard and the Gulag Archipelago. Or not (laughs) Kierkegaard. Um um, oh um, oh. I feel I'm so bad.
1: Uh.
2: Well, same. Um...
0: He wrote the Guller Archipelago. What is his freaking name? Um... Wow. We, we do not know our history. Yeah. Uh, Solzhenitsyn. There we go. Okay, okay. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Right. So like yeah. think about those kind of oppressive yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. empires, leaders, people groups. Um. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's the image we have in mind. demonstrable yeah. and not just oppressive and like they want to take your money
1: or like your yeah. land, but like not they're going the-
0: to they're going to kill all of you.
1: Yeah, kill you, rape you while they're killing you and probably skin you alive as well. Like it's horrific to say the least. And so barbaric
0: in the truest sense of the word.
1: Yeah. And so at this and this is one of the places where I, I sort of disagree with Tim in his sermon is that he says, you know, we can fast forward to the end of the story and we see why Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh it's because he hates them. Yeah. But I think that's actually supposed to be a plot twist. Hmm. At the end of the story. Okay. I, I think the original readers would have read this story and thought, oh, he's terrified. He's willing to run to, to, to sail over the gates to hell, to get away from a people that he thinks, because he's supposed to go preach a message of, you know, destruction, presumably to to the enemies of God's people, right? Repent or be destroyed. Repent or basically. be destroyed. Yeah, and what he says, it, he actually preaches in Hebrew. It's a five word sermon. Um, repent, or the city of Nineveh will be overturned. Repent city overturned. That's like the big thrust and Tim points out that that can be read in two different ways. Right. And Jonah's reading it one way. God's meaning it another way. Right. Overturn as in, you know, completely shake up everything and have everyone's hearts come back to him. But Jonah's meaning the entire city is going to be destroyed. And so. Um, but I think originally the original audience was reading this thinking, oh, Jonah has the crap scared out of him. Yeah. And he's trying to run because he thinks he's going to walk into the city, say one word, and they're going to cut his head off. Yeah. And probably do a few things before that. And so that's what the original reader or hearer is picturing at this point in the story. And so, you know, it's kind of like, oh, God, like, why are you, one, why are you making them go to these people that hate us and we hate them? But two, Jonah's terrified. And then, you know, they cast the, um, God casts the storms, they cast their lots or they cause the lots to fall. Um, and what I think is super cool, you know, Tim alludes to this sleepiness or this lethargic um, attitude that Jonah has. And it's really present in the text. He feels numb to everything and just unaware, not even blissfully, just like, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's almost like he's on a, some kind of, um, suppressant, like he just doesn't, it's not registering things with him. And he, um, the, the captain of the ship says to him, uh, what are you doing sleepy? Arise again, same word that God spoke. It's almost like God is calling out Jonah's lethargic, apathetic state through this sailor. And also like referencing back that original call to Jonah to arise. He's been going down. He needs to arise. And, um, you know, he says, call on your God again, like, Explicitly stating it, like, arise, call on your God, and perhaps um, he will think of us, and we will not perish. And so the lot fell on Jonah. I'm skipping a little bit here. Um, This is something I think is super cool. So two paragraphs. The two paragraphs, ten, Jonah one ten, and Jonah one forty four start the exact same way. Um, And Tim points this out that. Jonah's running from God's plan, but he's the most successful prophet ever because as he's running, people are turning towards God. And I think this is made explicitly clear in the text by the way it's laid out. So in Jonah's um, 1.10, it says, the men were afraid with great fear, and they said to him, um, what, uh, what is this that we should do to you? Um, but in Jonah, sorry, not 44. <laughs> Um, I have a footnote there for myself. That's numbered 44. Um, it's the verse 16, one says, so the men were afraid with great fear of Yahweh. So it adds the of Yahweh. And so because of what Jonah has done in running from God, God redeems it and brings his glory out of it. Now going back a little bit, um, So he says, you know, what God do you serve? Jonah's response is, I'm a Hebrew and Yahweh, the God of the heavens. So he's talking about the sky here, not the ethereal floating babies with wings place, but the sky, Um, who made the sea and the dry land. So he's the God of everything. And you're running from him on the sea. So that's stupid. That's why the sailors get afraid with great fear and he's the God of the dry land. This dry land word isn't super common. It's not super uncommon either to my knowledge, but the only other place that I've seen it explicitly used is in Genesis one. So again, when he makes
0: the dry land appear.
1: Yeah. Same word. Um, yeah. Same word. Okay. Um, and it's used several other times throughout the creation narratives. Again, I'm not sure that it's a super uncommon word, but it is a, a callback to that, I think, deliberately, especially with everything that we already have going on in this story. Um, and so, you know, they're afraid with great fear. Storm, they throw him overboard. Um, and Tim sort of makes the point, or at least I think he does, where it's like, is Jonah wanting to die? That way he doesn't have to go suffer the brutal death at the hand of the Assyrians or save his enemies. Um Or is Jonah just like, you know, let me sacrifice myself for the guys that I just got in trouble.
0: He doesn't sound Um, that heroic. He does not.
1: I will say the theme of this story is Jonah is kind of a jerk. So is this Jonah's one shining moment or is this Jonah trying to get out of something yet again? Um, I think the author of this, deliberately lets us figure that out. Um, So then going to. That's some good subtlety. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So then going to Jonah too, and this is super, super interesting. Um, So Tim didn't actually talk about this. And um, I actually disagreed with his sermon on the Psalm a little bit. Um, So there are several classifications of Psalms. And um, two that I'll highlight now are um, the I, I don't do you have much familiar with the Psalms familiar Psalms as a book yeah Psalms as a book and the the genre of Psalms that they typically fall into that sort of stuff
0: no that that in prophetic books are probably what I'm the least gotcha. knowledge of just because I haven't bothered to study them. Yeah uh, and they don't maybe this is bad maybe not I think it's partly partially just like an exposure and personality thing like they just don't interest me yeah those categories interest me
1: the least yes they interested me the least too and still sort of do but after my um so i had a there's a consecutive like class chain that you have to take at my school for old testament and the first is like the Torah and the Deuteronomistic History, and then the second is the Writings and the Prophets. And so I spent a whole semester on the Writings of the Prophets, and after that semester, I like them a whole lot more than I thought I would, um, and that I did at the time. Um, so they, they are more interesting than I think most people give them credit, but I also think they're taught poorly generally. So that probably yeah, is something to I
0: don't doubt that. I don't doubt both of those. So
1: yeah. Um, But so in that class, we talked about different classifications of Psalms, and two of them that are pretty important are um, Thanksgiving Psalms and Lament Psalms. Mm -hmm. So of the two, which would you
2: you, Go ahead.
0: Uh, Uh, Actually, I'll I'll say this, just for the benefit of whoever's listening. Can you give uh, one or two examples of a well-known, if you can think off the top of your head, yeah. I could probably give you an example of a lament song off the top of my head. Um,
1: lamentations is lament songs.
0: So. Yes, I was also thinking like um, Psalm fifty-one. Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then like a praise song, I, I would think of no. Well, here I am doing it. Um, Noah's song of not Noah. Oh my gosh, I'm getting all my characters mixed up. Uh, Moses's. The song that they sing after crossing the Red Sea? Yeah.
2: Just just Uh, for
1: reference of, like, what we're talking about. Well, and so, but Thanksgiving psalms are a little bit different in the sense that they, um, I'm using my Tanakh translation, and it is ordered differently than most Bibles. So now I have to look at my table of contents. Um, So most... So, that might be considered a Thanksgiving psalm, but in the book of Psalms, there's a very specific formulation to Thanksgiving psalms. And I should have okay. looked it up before this conversation. That way I could do this part justice. But um, I should have got this bandit on my thumb so I can't flip pages. This is a, this is a rough experience.
0: Um, Here, while, while you're doing that, I'm going to look up some stuff for after this conversation. Yeah. If we um, get to it, if we don't, that's fine.
1: Okay. Well, um, oh, shoot. So, the, um, a psalm that... So, a lament typically follows a... Um, I guess the basic things that you'll notice in a lament are one, that there's a problem. There's a big problem that the person is deeply sorry or like um, deeply... Um, regretful for, not necessarily sorry, like they did something wrong, but there's like a, there's a, a deep sorrow about this issue. And then there's a plea to God to fix the problem, right? Then a Thanksgiving Psalm typically has a deep lament or sorrow, and then a thanking for God fixing that deep lament or sorrow so there's a bit of a different like the one asks God to fix it the other one thanks God for fixing it which would you expect to see when Jonah's in the belly of a fish
0: the one where he asks God to fix it because something's wrong
1: asks God to fix it right yeah well, in, I think this is verse 7, um, you see the transition of the psalm, and I'll read through the whole thing in a minute, but in verse 7, it transitions, but you brought my life up from destruction, Yahweh my God. In the fainting away of my soul, I remembered Yahweh, and my prayers came to you, to your holy temple. Those who observe vaporous vapors of emptiness forsake their faithfulness, but I, in the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you that I vow to perform. Be at peace, salvation from Yahweh.
2: Hmm.
1: So this psalm is a thanksgiving psalm, while Jonah is currently sitting at the bottom of the ocean, in the pits of Sheol, in the belly of a fish. So this, I think, actually builds on Tim's point that Jonah has no spatial awareness. Jonah is completely numb to everything that's going on around him. Jonah or Jonah's thanking God for killing him and not making him go through with what he wanted to do
0: and putting him in, sh- in uh shield.
1: Yeah. Because earlier in the Psalm, I'll read the first part. Now um, I called from my distress to Yahweh and he answered me from again, it's past tense, right? Yeah. So it's, it's this thing has already happened. This bad thing that I'm describing has already happened. And then the later part, he thanks him for getting him out of it, which is really weird because he's still in it, which begs the question then, because this this we're about to see, it's a bunch of water imagery that he states and he's surrounded by water. He's talking about the situation he's in, but it almost seems as though he's describing the situation he was in before when God called him to go to Assyria as the deep, dark distress, the water, the abyss, the Shaol. So there's this weird play of like, is he talking about the situation he's in now or the situation God called him to before? And, um, and so it's, it's really strange. So I called from my distress to Yahweh and he answered me from the belly of Shaol, I cried out for, for help. He's currently in the belly of Shaol. So again, like, is he describing where he was or where he is now? Because it's past tense, but like, what's going on? Again, now Hebrew doesn't necessarily have tenses as we think of them, but there is this like completedness to the act, I guess would be the the best way to say it. Uh, He listened to my voice, but you cast me to the depths in the heart of the sea. The river surrounds me all your breaking billows and waves pass over me. And I said, I am driven away from in front of your eye, which is interesting because Jonah was running away from God. He wasn't driven away from God. And so now he's, again, he, it's either he's passing the buck, right? And saying, we're going to blame something else or somebody else, or this Psalm is completely not describing the situation as it stands right now. And again, Jonah is apathetic and numb to what's going on around him. The water encompasses me even to my very soul. So this like very deep abyss that the, the home surrounds me, the primeval waters surround me, an illusion directly to Genesis 1. Um The reeds bind my head. So this could either be um, an allusion to, you know, bind your law on on your head and on your arm, or it could be um, burial cloths. He could be talking about reeds as his burial cloths. Um, To the base of the mountains, I went down forever. So the base of the mountains, that's, again, talking about the pillars that God set the earth on, the foundation. So he's below the earth in the in the shoal in the chaotic waters that rest under um, everything. Um, and then, you know, after the Psalm ends, I've already read that last little bit. Um, and Yahweh spoke to the fish and it vomited on dry land. So again, that word directly referencing the dry land from before out of the waters, out of the water. And so he, now Jonah is coming out of the waters. And so what would you expect this new creation, right? Jonah just there's some midrash that actually talk about Jonah dying here and being resurrected, which then Jesus then plays on later. Um, And we won't actually, at least as far as I'm concerned, talk about that, but um, we we can get into that if you want to later. I don't have many thoughts. Okay. Um, But yeah, Jonah's um, the midrash talks about Jonah dying and then being resurrected um, as the fish spits him out. And so there's this idea of new creation, almost, and resurrection. And so Jonah is now supposed to be different.
0: No sign will be given to this generation except the prophet Jonah, who is in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man. So will the Son of Man be
1: where? In the earth, three days and three. So Jesus is doing all sorts of creative and amazing things with that, um, that reference that I think um, this talk can really form the foundation of. Um, And I haven't even explored all the avenues that I would like to with this, but um, yeah, I think Jonah is one of the most compelling books in the entire Bible, obviously rambling for an hour or so. Um, So Um, picking back up in
0: Jonah. Yeah. So Jonah needs to go to Nineveh now.
1: Nineveh. So, and the word of the Lord was to Jonah a second time saying arise, go to Nineveh, the great city and call to her the call that I speak to you. So I, what I noticed when translating this is that God doesn't say the exact same thing this time. He actually, that he did in chapter one. So in chapter one, he said, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call upon her, not to her. Um, and then he said, surely their wickedness is before me in chapter one. But in the beginning of chapter three, he says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call to her. So there's a difference in the upon and the to. Um, and I think that's an important um is that there are actually, um, there is a word in Hebrew that can mean both, but they are actually, in this case, different words. I was very particular with that. Um, call to her, the call that I speak to you. So he doesn't, God doesn't even tell Jonah this time what he's saying or what he's going to say when he gets there, which is super interesting. And then we're never told that God actually tells Jonah. I think we're meant to assume that the call that Jonah is um, giving is from God, but um. We're never explicitly told that. And so, you know, we get to this point in the story and God seems to be even the, in the way he's relating this to Jonah, sort of playing a little trick um, and being interesting. He's like, okay, Jonah, like I'm willing to use you, but you're going to have to actually do something. Um so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. So it's actually explicitly said, so Jonah went to Nineveh. He wasn't just spit up on shore. Um, yeah. Like we often imagine. Um, Nineveh is a great city, a three days walk. It was not historically. It, it was not. Um, this
0: is another um, point where the grandness, the bigness of of what's going on, the enlargement of the story the hyperbolic nature of the of these things is being used
1: yeah well and and Tim talks about the two scholarly opinions one that this is literal history and the other that this is some kind of parable and I would definitely subscribe to the parable theory because yeah. of the way that this is using mm-hmm. literature and historical character to draw a point and I, I'll get to it later when I think this was or what period of history I think this was written and why I think this was written the way that it was. And it does something that's absolutely amazing. So um, Jonah says 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Um, So this can mean overturned. Uh, Tim talks about it meaning like flipping a pancake overturned as um, the entire city in ruin, everything's destroyed, that kind of overturned or overturned in the, like it changes direction. It it becomes something new, um, which is super funny, right? Because Jonah supposedly was supposed to have become something new through his experience with the fish and the allusion to the creation, um, like a new creation, but he, he didn't. And I don't think he's expecting the city to either. Um, So again, if Jonah was paying attention to what God's doing, he might see this coming, but he's apathetic. He's numb. He doesn't, it's just not sinking in. And so, um, you know, he says this and all the people of Nineveh were faithful in God and they called to, called to fast and they wore sackcloth from the greatest unto the least. Uh, one thing that's super interesting about this section of the book is that the word used for God is almost explicitly, unless it's Yahweh, it's Elohim. So, um, that word can be singular or plural, and it is also used to refer to pagan gods. So it's actually unclear in the Hebrew whether or not they're turning to Yahweh or they're turning to their own gods, um, hmm. which is kind of weird.
0: So you you translated Yahweh in these other portions. In this that, verse, yes, it it switches.
1: Yes, yes. yes. So Yahweh, um, Nineveh, according to the word of Yahweh, that was verse. That's in verse three. And then, and the people of God and the people of Nineveh were faithful to Elohim, and they called to fast, and they wore sackcloth. Mm. Now, the word God has been used earlier in the book as well, occasionally, specifically in the psalm. Um, but it's almost never, so like chapter 2, verse 2, Jonah prayed to God, his God, Yahweh. Um, so his Elohim, Yavah, um, or Yahweh, um, but Yahweh has been consistently used um, or like, I am a Hebrew, uh, this is verse 9 in chapter 1, I'm a Hebrew, and Yahweh, Elohim of, he- of the heavens, I fear, who made the sea and the dry land. So again, the word Elohim is used to refer to the God that's then named Yahweh explicitly. Whereas here, Yahweh is not explicitly named in, in the uh, chapter three when they repent, which is super weird, right? Like you would expect it to say, and they turned to Elohim Yahweh and wore sackcloth and fasted and all that stuff. But it just says, and they turned to Elohim.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm not sure what to theologically do with that. I'm just going to put that out there. I'm reading the text as it's written, and yeah.
0: And we anyway. talked a little bit about how Elohim is used when we had our first conversation, and I talked about um, cosmic geography. So yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that'd be a good place to bring that in. Um, so just like insert that conversation here. Um, I think that's that's a super interesting point you make there um so then it talks about how the um the king sort of ups the ante and i think this is supposed to be a particularly comedic point um when the uh when the king's like the animals are supposed to repent and fast yeah. and sackcloth i'm just imagining some ninevite like chasing a chicken around trying to shove it into a sack <laughs> like that's the image that comes up in my head when i read this um or like, okay, Bessie, like, come on. And they got the cow and then they throw the sackcloth over it. And it's like, Mur! like, you know, that's sort of a, the image that we're being asked to imagine here when reading this. And we sort of read, this as some like somber moment, but this is actually like super funny. So. Um, oh, yeah. It's like, it's supposed to be the climax of the story when the good thing happens and everyone's saved, but it's, it ends up being this like really stupid Image of like an extreme repentance that becomes comedic. It's so extreme.
0: Um, so the bot by- Jonah is a Tarantino movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's like it's incredible. So uh, whoever, it's like
0: it's like at the end of. Sorry, I keep referencing this movie all the time. I love it. It's like at the end of Django when he's killing all the slave owners and this like masters of the house. And it's like the violence is so over the top yeah. that you're meant to laugh at it. Yeah. That's part of the point. Mm-hmm. And so like, not the same scenario, but similar things going on here. Right. Yeah. It's like, Oh, the yeah. repentance, the like, like yeah. Dango's getting his revenge. Right. So you're like, oh yeah, stick it to him. But then it's like, oh no, this is actually funny. Right. Yeah. And here it's yeah. like, oh, they're repenting. Like, this is great. And you're like, oh no, but this is kind of funny.
1: Right. Yeah. Like you can see the, the little Hebrew kids laughing at this around the campfire as their father is telling them the story like, oh, the cows are repenting. The chickens are repenting like they're chasing the chickens, trying to I mean, you can see, you know, being like Rivka, go get the chicken and put some sackcloth. And she's like, ah, you know, like tickling his daughter kind of thing. Like, that's the vibe I get here. Um, so, you know, like early, the, the modern equivalent, go get, you know your dog and put sackcloth on it and, tr- and try to get your dog to wear sackcloth. Like just imagine that. Right. Yeah. So it's supposed to be super funny. And then, so we'll pick up in verse eight. But the let- absurdity
0: of the comedic point is that like all, everybody in the land is is putting on.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah. Re- is
0: repenting. Is putting on it, sackcloth. This is
1: the most amazing repentance that has ever been experienced on planet earth recorded biblically. Like, no Israelite repentance has ever been like this ever, which I think is also part of the point, right? Um, because we're going to get to chapter four, which is a weird chapter that nobody really knows what to do with normally. And it's, um, Tim talks about how it's omitted from the story. Usually um, we make the point, the fish and not chapter four, which is the actual point of the book. Um, cause we don't know what to do with chapter four because we haven't spent enough time with it.
2: Right. Uh,
1: but, um, but yeah, there's been no Israelite repentance in the history of their nation that is this massive and this overwhelming. Um, and it's so overwhelming that it's funny.
0: Yeah, and this is brought on to the other community point that's made earlier, right? And the, and the city of Nineveh was a 3 days walk. It's so like, okay, anybody in this huge, everybody, even the animals in this gargantuan city, yes, is putting on sackcloth and ashes and they're repenting
1: and they're fasting and they're not drinking water. Like this is extreme. This is intense. Um, And so picking up in verse eight of chapter three, and let them be concealed in sackcloth and the men and the animals and let them call on Elohim in strength and let men turn back from their evil ways and from the violence that was in their uh, their palm, who knows Elohim may repent and have compassion in turn from his burning anger. Now that is singular. His burning anger. So there is this sort of sense that, you know, maybe we're actually talking about Yahweh. But again, this whole paragraph has been Elohim and not Yahweh. And so, but that also brings up the point that Jonah, like Tim makes this point explicit. Jonah never mentions Yahweh in his...
0: Yep. Not named in his sermon.
1: Not named in the the five-word sermon. He's not one of those five words. It's never mentioned that if they repent, anything good will happen or that they even need to repent. Repentance is never suggested by Jonah. Like it's the weirdest sermon ever because there's no solution. Like the prophets always provide a solution. Mm -hmm. The prophets do two things. They're like, okay, they make predictions, right? But that's not the point of the prophecy. The point of the prophecy is to point to repentance. And so they make a prediction if you keep doing what you're doing this is going to happen and it's going to be awful but if you repent this is going to happen and it's going to be great like that's the general like if you want profits 101 that's what they do and and so Jonah doesn't do 50% of profits 101 like that's not like he well,
0: failed the class
1: yeah you you failed Jonah you absolutely failed but it's the it's but the he doesn't bad. fail yeah. Um, and so it's like no matter what Jonah does, like Jonah has been a part of God's most redemptive work in canonical, prophetic, like anything. And, and Jonah he's the worst that. prophet ever. Yeah, he's the worst prophet ever, and he's the most successful. Um, again, it's supposed to be funny, right? Um, and Elohim saw their deeds from turning from their evil ways. So Elohim had compassion on the evil that he spoke for doing to them, and he did not do it. Elohim was going to do evil to them? That's an interesting way of phrasing that Bible. I don't think that fits in our theology at all. Um, But anyway, that's the end of chapter three. Um, Any thoughts on that so far?
0: Not anything more than... I think what we've just been saying, it's yeah. it's absurd for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah.
1: So I'll try to make chapter four quick. It's a good
0: Judd Apatow out. movie.
1: Yeah. To keep yeah, bringing
0: yeah. up the film references.
2: like
1: <laughs> Yeah. Um, it, like I said, whoever wrote this book. Because we don't have a penned author. Whoever wrote this book did a phenomenal job. Like, oh, my gosh. It is layers upon layers of brilliance. Um, okay, so starting. What are you talking
0: four. about, Daniel? God just whispered in his ear exactly what he wanted him to say.
1: Who's he? Mm-hmm. Jonah? Because I don't think Jonah, it doesn't say Jonah. Really. No, no,
0: no. I'm making a joke about. Um... Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I know. Well,
1: I'm, I'm playing with the joke, too. Like, oh. who, who's he? Jonah, God whispered in he, him, his ear. Well, who's the, who's the hymn right now?
2: <laughs> we don't, we don't have one.
1: Um, but yeah, you're, you're right. Um, okay. So, uh, but Yonah, but to Yonah, this was very bad. Or you can also say this was very evil.
0: Mm, yeah. Legit- Is it, um, uh, what's the, what's the word? Um, Ra. 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 The tree um, of the knowledge of.
1: Tov and uh, to, to Ra, and um, Ra. So that's the same. It's actually the same word. I probably should have translated it the same. Um,
0: well, no, it's for, for uh, from what I understand, generally in in biblical translation, that word means bad. It
1: does, it means bad or evil, um, and so, but I translated it once evil in the verse just prior to it, and once bad in the verse next. So I, I should have probably just stay consistent. Uh, uh, I don't know. I get hold. what you're
0: saying. I get what you're saying.
1: I probably, sh- I probably did this in two separate sittings. Like I did chapter three and then I stopped and then I did chapter four. Um, but anyway, so, and it was very evil uh, or, but to Jonah, this was very evil. So God stopped his evil, but Jonah thought that God stopping his evil was evil. Interesting. And he was very angry, and it was very angering to him. And he prayed to Yavah, Yahweh, and he said, Ah, pray, Yahweh, is this not what I said while I was in my own land? Well, we never had that recorded. Therefore, I fled to, to Tarshish, for I knew you l. So that's the only time in the book we get the word L used to describe God. So he seems to be distancing himself from God a little bit here, mm. Are and compassionate, patient in anger and abundant in faithfulness and to comfort upon the wicked. Sorry that my, my translation reads a little clunky because I'm trying to be super literal with the Hebrew, um, or at least a little bit more literal with the Hebrew than um, making it easy in the English. So he's quoting here, something from um I believe Exodus, you know, mm-hmm. you're faithful, compassionate, you know, forgive. It continues Exodus, you know, forgiving to the, you know, the so-and-so generation, having compassion and all of that. Um, so now Yahweh, please take my life from me for it is better for, for my death than for my life. So that's an important phrase to understand here. It is better for my death than my life. He's going to say that again. And Yahweh said, is it good for you to be angry? That is also an important phrase. Is it good for you to be angry? God is going to do something incredible with Jonah here using that phrase. And Jonah went out of the city and he sat down to the east and, you know, a plant grows up over him to provide him shade, even though he already has shade from a booth that he built. So it's kind of confusing as to what he's talking or why he's so upset about this plant. But anyway, so Jonah, uh, Jonah rejoiced with great joy on account of the plant. This is the first time Jonah's been happy in the entire dadgum book. And he's really happy, rejoiced with great joy. And God appointed a little worm. (laughs) So there's this great plant and a great ship in a great city and a great everything, great anger, great repentance, great everything. Great joy at the great plant and joy at the great plant. And God appoints a little worm to ascend at dawn of the next day. And it struck the plant and it dried up. Just a little, little tiny thing. And I I hear the words of Jesus, faith is small as a mustard seed. Uh, And the sun rose. So again, that same word for arise. Um, And the sun rose and God prepared a hot east wind and it struck Jonah's head and he was faint. Um, And he asked his soul for death. And he said, again, it is better for me, uh, for my death than for my life. So he's been so mad. This is the first time he's cared about anything. The first time he's been happy. The first time that anything has gone right, that he's had compassion. And God says, is it good for you to be angry? But that's not where, it's where the first statement stopped. But that's not where the second statement stops. On account of the plant. So what's God doing here?
0: He's contrasting Jonah's anger, yeah, okay. about Nineveh's salvation, yeah. more or less, and, and so, then me, about me, the me, loss of the plan.
1: Quick. Yeah, let me because I just re- I asked that question and then I remembered it's actually going to be better if I just finish the the book. Real quick. Yeah, 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 finish the, read that last sentence. And he said, it it is good for me to be angry, even to death. And Yahweh said, you have compassion on the plant for which you did not labor in it. And you did not, um, did it not become great overnight and overnight perished. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city, which there are in her more than 12,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and many animals? That is such a weird way to end a book right? So, what's God doing here?
0: He's comparing the plant to Nineveh. Yeah. Like, very straightforwardly, right? Could not rise up and die in a day. Yeah. You're concerned. um, Again, I'm thinking of Jesus break hairs, the lilies of the field that are here today and gone tomorrow. Mm -hmm. How much more? You You. Yeah. He's making the same kind of alliteration, not alliteration, but same kind of literal comparison yep. right, that, you, that God is making in this story. Right? The, the great plant that gave you shade that came up overnight and then was destroyed. You care more about that. You're more angry about that going away than about 12,000 people getting saved.
1: Then you are about... All of these people that I just redeemed, despite your best efforts to sabotage me. You were just a part of the most successful prophetic career that has ever existed. And you're upset because you don't like the people who I just saved. Mm -hmm. What about that, Jonah? Let's talk about that. And Jonah just wants to die. God sends Jonah to the enemy. And Jonah says no. And God, and we think at at first in the story that it's because Jonah is afraid. And then we realize it's because Jonah hates his enemy. Jonah hates them. And God said, but I love them. And I want you to help partner with me to save them. If you care about this plant, care about these people, yes, they've done horrible things to you. But help me put the world back together. Don't give in to your hatred, don't give in to your anger, and don't give in to your racism. And help me fix this situation. And Jonah is so self-centered and self-righteous and caught up in his own agenda that he misses the work of God. This is one of the most compelling books in our canon, and we have made it a children's story. So, should we fast forward to Jesus real quick?
0: Well, I was about to read Matthew 5. Okay. If you want to start there, we can.
1: Um, So, uh, Matthew 5. Sermon on the Mount. Okay, go for it. Go for it. Go for it, please.
0: Okay. Matthew 5, start 38. I'll read Verses. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist. Oh, actually, sorry, I'm going to read this in the ESV. Uh, here we go. heard that it it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect to your Heavenly Father.
1: So <clears throat> I'm super glad that you brought this up, because uh, not only does it apply to what I'm just saying, but it's going to apply to what I'm about to say. Um, anything more from the Sermon on the Mount that you wanted to uh, go
2: over Uh, it's
0: probably um, if I had to pick one passage from the New Testament that I if I had to give up every other passage in the New Testament uh, and could pick one passage I would could only read for the rest of my life would be the Sermon on the
1: Mount Oh, I 100% agree 100% agree Um, Uh,
0: I'm just looking through it right now Um, so give me one second um
2: yeah. I'll read the
0: end. This is Matthew seven, starting twenty-four. Okay. And this goes back to Faith and Works conversation we had. Yeah. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. at his teaching, for he teached them as one who had authority and not as the scribes.
1: So that was the end of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then just a few stories later in Matthew 8, we get um, Jesus leading his followers across the um, the sea to the Decapolis across the Sea of Galilee. Um, <clears throat> so we have Jesus heal a leper. We have him heal a centurion servant, and he heals many. That,
0: of oh man, I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: you're good. Anyway,
0: that no, I think that story is super important for yeah the conversation.
1: So, yeah, no, no, no. It really is because the centurion he heals the centurion's servant, um, and I don't know if it's in this account or another account of the same encounter in one of the other Gospels, but Jesus says, you know, okay, show me the way we'll go. I'll heal your servant or whatever. And the man says, recognizing that Jesus can't enter his house under Jewish law and be, and not be unclean. He says, no, just say it. I'm one who has authority. You seem to have authority. You speak it. And I will trust that it has happened. Um, and then Jesus, you know, his faith, all that jazz. Um, Jesus does, is talking about, in the sermon on the mount loving people who you think are outside of god's covenant right we just talked mm-hmm. about that in the sermon on the mount he's talking about you know the gentile the outsider he then does something for an outsider he actively heals for an outsider so he's showing his disciples right he's saying to his disciples this is what we're supposed to do not just an
0: outsider them. an enemy
1: an enemy A vicious enemy, the oppressor. One who
0: commands armies of the Romans who are oppressing the Jewish people. Currently. And it is likely that his servant might have been a Jew.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And so, but this centurion has enough compassion to want that servant healed. The centurion is crossing the racial boundary to love and Jesus is recognizing that, and he likewise is crossing the boundary too. And so then we have Jesus say, okay, let's go to the Decapolis. So let's take the same story, but in the gospel of Mark. Because um, I know the details in Mark a little bit better than I know them in.
0: All right. Um, I Sorry. I just have to read. Well, I'll go there in just a second. Yeah, no, I just no, have no, to read, ahead, read this. Go for it. He says, uh, Lord, my servant is lying, paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the words and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Soldiers, let's not forget. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled just like the crowds he marvelled and said to those who were who followed him truly i tell you no one in israel with uh, truly i tell you with no one in israel have i found such faith
1: i tell you many will come from east and west and will eat with abraham isaac and jacob in the kingdom of heaven and you want to see how Jesus puts that into practice?
0: It's no wonder that they didn't kill him sooner.
2: Yeah.
1: So, so then Jesus, just a few.
0: So you're in Mark. Where are you
1: in Mark? Sorry. Yeah, I'm in Mark chapter four, verse 35. Okay. And this happens in the Matthew narrative later, but I think the, um, the story is a bit longer in Mark. And so it helps us kind of, uh, has a few more details that I think are interesting when taking in, in light Jonah's, uh, the backstory that we've laid for Jonah. So um, let me know when you're there.
0: No, I am there. Go ahead.
1: So uh, starting at verse 35, on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, the other side is a technical term that they used in the religious triangle, which is. A selection of Jewish cities in the Galilee that were very devout. Um, so, the other side is a technical term referring to the Decapolis or the land of the seven, which is where all the pagans lived. Um, it was a Greek settlement. So, Jesus is taking a bunch of religious, racist Jews across to the land of their oppressors after he just preached a sermon and performed a miracle about loving your enemy and crossing these boundaries. And Marty Solomon in Bamos suggests that this Greek phrase, and I don't know Greek yet, so I can't confirm or deny. But he says that this Greek phrase in um, 36 is... Um, a little hard to translate and might indicate to some strife between Jesus and his disciples about the decision to go to the Decapolis. Um, so in, in 36 and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. So that's a little kind of a confusing statement. And so I, I'm inclined to agree with Marty just because that's a weird way to word that. And other boats were with them. Mm-hmm. That's also interesting. I um, believe Brent does some interesting stuff with the other boats um, in the podcast. So now, again, any large open body of water is the pits of hell. If you were in Galilee and you wanted to go to the Decapolis for some reason, um, Jews didn't, but if you did, you could just walk there. You, you would legitimately walk around the sea and take you a day-ish, and, you would, and that's what you would do.
0: Again, you could walk there. But Jesus says, We're not walking.
1: Go in the boat. Um, and Marty suggests that Jesus didn't just have to say, Let's go in the boat. He said, Get in the boat. And his disciples were like, Fine,
0: okay. So. <clears throat> All right, read 37, because I think people are picking up on this.
1: And a great windstorm arose, and waves were breaking into the boat. That's actually something that was said in the book of Jonah. So the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. Who else have we known that was asleep on a cushion in the middle of a storm?
0: Going and across the, the sea to somewhere that he necessarily didn't want to go. Not Jesus, yeah. but his disciples. Yeah, but that people in the boat
1: didn't want to go. Yeah. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and and said to the sea, peace, be still. And there's a lot of things going on with the Psalms there that Marty gets into in his podcast on this. But what's super interesting, right, is who is the one who calmed Sheol, the pit, Ta'om, in the beginning? Yeah. God. And so when the disciples freak out later, I've always thought, well, that's silly. They've seen him heal people. Like, why are they freaking out that he can do this too? Mm -hmm. Two plus two equals four. No, 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 no. The Psalms explicitly say, and Genesis one explicitly says only God can do that. And this whole lesson has been framed around one. We've had a whole narrative, right? About Jesus authority. Right. So Jesus has authority. The centurion has authority who recognizes Jesus authority. But then so here we have this final like nail in the coffin of authority. But then we also have coupled with it, this image of Jonah running from his call and this whole racial, you know, hatred of the other Jesus trying to bring the Gentiles into the fold, the enemy into the fold, loving the enemy. And um. And so we have Jesus actively walking out the story of Jonah with his disciples, teaching like a Jewish teacher, like a rabbi would do. And he's saying, guys, like, not only am I God, but I'm saying this is our mission to go get them. And there are some more key pieces that fall later in the Gospels that solidify this, but... And then this is where Jesus shows up and he heals the demon-possessed man, the Gerasene demoniac. And, um, you know, the the spirits go into the pigs and they go into the, and all that. So he he goes there and he performs a miracle and then they run him off. They run him off. But I think the important point, at least for us to sit with today, is Jesus is intentionally crossing boundaries and he's using Jonah to get his disciples to do the same. When Jesus is referencing Jonah here, I think he's referencing that conclusion we came to in chapter four. He's citing chapter one and two, right? But he's implying the ending with everything he's framing around this. Does that make
2: sense? Yeah.
1: And we, we, we miss it right we we don't pick up on that really we think of this as like oh jesus is proving that he's god or oh jesus is you know performing a miracle and his disciples are so dumb you know they just don't get it um but there's a lot more going on here
2: yeah i i don't i don't know
0: if i have anything else to say um on that on that point, um, yeah, it's just sad to me that we've made Jonah about a fish.
1: Yeah, yeah. When it's so complex and Jesus uses it in so many unique and compelling ways.
0: Okay. On that note, let's go. We can we can end and uh, we can have a little, I'll have a little spiel.
1: Um, I've got about 10 minutes, roughly.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm watching the clock.
1: Yeah, no, you're good. I just I um, hate that you ran this late on stuff. All
0: right, Matthew 12. And Some of the scribes in the fair, keep in mind, and I've talked about this, this whole half of Matthew 12 is a big discussion between jesus and the pharisees about by what power he does what he does and just he heal the demon possessed man and then they come up and they say oh no it's by Beelzebub that he casts out demons and
1: then jesus does his famous uh, house of vikings himself cannot
0: stand da, da, da. right
1: well and what's um, super interesting too right is that this whole jonah thing has also been tied to his authority in the past like we just referenced
0: yes okay but i want to point out i want to point out something that i okay. think is again it's like it's no wonder they didn't kill him sooner okay like uh, all right here we are matthew 12 i'm gonna start in also uh, everything he says in the paragraph before this about a tree's known by its fruit and in the and in the comparison of trees and fruit he calls them a brood of vipers yeah it's yeah okay like You get what Jesus is doing here, all right? And what does it say after this? They've had this whole discussion about demon possession and exorcism and all this stuff. It says, and then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, as if you didn't already get one, but okay. (laughs) But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is what's interesting. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And I'll read the next verse too. The queen of the South will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of, of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Can you read that? Actually, I'll go back. Um, Matthew 8. Matthew 8?
2: Yeah. Let me go back there. What part of Matthew
0: 8? Verse 10. Verse 10 and 11. 10 and 11. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And what is Jesus proclaiming here? Look, you want a sign? You want to see something? Guess what? Those Gentile, murderous, adulterous, evil Ninevites who I saved, who repented, will rise up in judgment of this generation. Because I'm not just worried about the Israelite, I'm not just worried about the Jew. I'm worried about them all. And you can get mad like Jonah. You can get so mad that you're going to kill me. But Nineveh and the queen who came to Solomon, way outside of Jewish territory, way outside of Israel, Mm -hmm. comes to the sacred space of Israel and believes. Yeah. And I think what Jesus is begging us to see here, just like he said, you have heard it said,
2: love. What is it? I'll read it again. Matthew Love
1: your friends, but hate your enemy. Yes.
0: You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, God, which just makes... Parable of the Good Samaritan, so much more interesting when you read that phrase into it.
1: Yeah. Well, it's 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 Jonah, right? I mean that, that's literally Jonah, is he's loving his friend and he's hating his enemy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and Jesus is saying, no, that's not enough. That's not what we're about.
0: You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And the ultimate question of Jonah is this. What happens when God forgives our enemies?
2: Yeah.
0: What do we do? What is our reaction? And that tells us a lot about who we are. And so the the thing... I'll just say this. This will be my last thing. I'll feel like I'll do you all a disservice if I don't say it, but everybody wants an enemy, right? Everybody everybody wants an enemy. Pick your group, pick your political party, pick whatever. Everybody wants an enemy. Because it's easy. Having someone to hate, having someone to constantly point the finger at, having someone to blame for all the problems is easy. And sometimes, and here's the hard part sometimes, maybe many times, those reasons you have are valid. Right? Yep. They're valid. Yeah. Of course, the Jews hated the Romans. Look at what they're doing.
1: Yeah. They're crucifying you.
0: Of course.
2: Not just Jesus, but like others.
0: Yes. And everybody wants an enemy, right? That's why CNN and Fox News both love Donald Trump.
1: Yep. Yep.
0: Because to one, he's the friend, and to one, he's the enemy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And they both gouge him for profit. Yep. And I think that the remarkable nature of Jesus is that he says, and these are terms that are coming back to our culture, I think, in ways that are true and in ways that are overused. But whether you're the oppressed or whether you're the oppressor, I, and I'm using this word deliberately, liberate you. Yeah. I liberate you from your oppression and I liberate you from your need to be an oppressor. Yeah. What are we going to do about this? What? And do we, here's the other thing. Do we look, this is my last question I'll ask. Do we look at our enemies as if they're forgivable? Do we? Do, Do we really? i don't know man i find it really hard i do too i find it really hard
1: and i've just got to say i've heard a lot of politically motivated christians read this phrase you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you i've heard a lot of politically motivated christians say You should not have to love your, your oppressor. And I hear Jesus saying, and there's a lot of nuance to this, but I hear Jesus saying, no, you do. And in fact, that's the solution. That is how you partner with me in putting the world back together. And no, it's not easy. Of course, it's not easy but that doesn't make it any less a christian's responsibility.
0: And don't get us wrong this doesn't mean you don't call out things that are evil.
1: No. People definitely. who are
0: doing evil things.
1: What what did Jonah do? Jonah went and and called out I mean God even explicitly says in the beginning of the book Go Their evilness
0: has risen before me. I see Their what they're evilness
1: doing. has come up in front of me. I see what they're doing. You're supposed to go and tell them what they need to do
2: instead. Help them.
1: And, and Jonah hates instead. And and what the book of Jonah is doing, I think, is it's turning the microscope on the reader. And it's making you examine yourself. Because what the original hearer of this would have thought was, oh yeah, that's my enemy. And oh, I see why Jonah's running. And oh, I, you know, I get this. But silly Jonah for running from God, silly Jonah from from thinking that he could do it his own way. Why is Jonah so mad? And then at the very end, you realize that you're Jonah in the story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you're the one. I mean, it, it ends, the literal book ends with a question and it's kind of an awkward question too, right? Why are you mad that I'm saving this city of 12,000 people who don't know the right hand from their left and also many animals? Like that's a, that's a weird question. It just ends abruptly. And it's because you're supposed to sit in that and say, why are you mad that God loves the people that you hate? Why are you mad that God wants to forgive the people that you're bitter against?
0: And I'll, I'll, I'll just end with this will be we can end with this question that I have. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything that would be greater than God bringing salvation to your enemy? Yeah. Bring to put the world back together. Yeah. Would you not want that?
2: Yeah.
0: Truly.
1: Why, Why would you not?
0: Why would you not want that? Yeah. Ask God sister Jonah about the. Yeah. Plan. Anyway, we got to leave it at that. Your wife's home. So.
1: <laughs> well man it's been good um yes
0: yes i didn't didn't get everything i wanted to in but i
1: i think no. it was well, well worth we'll try again next week
0: okay. net what we'll pick some i mean we can go keep going if we want but uh we can pick another subject too yeah like yeah. i think i think i'm good i think i said everything i need to say so okay unless you. you have more but
1: on this no I'm I'm exhausted on the Jonah thing I've run out of material but um but yeah no we can do um we can do that other thing that you suggested um if you want and then the question you had to for today that we never got to. So.
0: Yes. All right so let's do those. Let's do that. Let's can you that. uh
1: can you text me both of those? That way I can be thinking about them.
0: Yes, yes I will. Um just snap or snap me. Instagram me your your phone number just so it'll be easier. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually going to suggest that too. So, um,
0: all right, man. Anyway,
1: I got to run, but I'll talk to you later.
0: And if you get memento, in, let me know.
1: Yeah, we'll do. We'll do.
0: All right. See you later, man. Appreciate it. Bye. You.
1: Look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy, when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Neverland, never say, I never gave you hands. If I can't
2: give them back, then you look.